0: Hey friends, Shelby Stanger here, host of Wild Ideas Worth Living. We're taking this week off to recover a bit from the holidays, but we wanted to introduce you to another podcast doing some amazing things. The Trail Ahead podcast is hosted by Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. On the show, Addie and Faith bring together guests from all walks of life. They interview activists, artists, athletes, climate scientists, and outdoor industry leaders to discuss representation and access to the outdoors. On this week's episode, Faith and Addie speak with Camila Journay. Camila is a long-distance runner, marketing strategist, and environmental activist. She joins the trail ahead for a conversation about making the outdoors more welcoming, embracing a changing identity as a runner, finding joy through movement, and so much more. If you enjoy their conversation, you can check out more episodes from the Trail Ahead podcast. Just tune in, hit subscribe, and show them love wherever you listen. We'll be back to our regular programming next week with a guest who ran across the entire United States. Until then, here's Faith and Addie's episode with Camila Journay.
1: to the Trail Ahead, conversations at the intersection of race, environment, history, culture, and the outdoors. We're your hosts, Addie and Faith. We bring on folks from all walks of life to have real, authentic, messy dialogue that can lead to tangible change. Our guest this week is Camila Journay, an avid outdoor adventurer who has worked in the running industry in many capacities and also has written about questions of equity using her own experience as a long-distance runner. It was so great to have Camila Jarnay on the podcast. Find out more via the links in our show notes. Stay tuned for The Debrief, where we discuss a topic that's come up in various episodes and in our personal lives, eco-anxiety. Okay. Okay. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) We're
2: on. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody podcast now. (laughs) our new intro. I hope everyone likes it. Yeah, that's uh, that's our intro music.
1: Camilla, you didn't know we were part of our recording of uh, our
2: new <laughs> <laughs> um, Amazing.
1: Welcome!
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks Thank everyone you. for being here today. Let's jump right into it. We always like to ask our guests to introduce themselves however they're feeling today. Whatever you feel like saying about yourself today doesn't have to be standard. There are no required, what should we say, no required qualifications of engagement that you have to mention or not.
3: Awesome. Well, my name is Camila Jornay. My pronouns are she, her. I am a long distance runner. I'm an environmentalist. I am a marketing strategist, chef seems like a strong word, but I really like to cook. So I always love to throw that in there. And yeah, I, I do a lot of work with brands trying to create spaces of belonging, specifically in the outdoor industry. Oh, and I'm also co-VP of the Board of Directors for Runners for Public Lands, which is a 501c3 nonprofit focused on environmental stewardship and access to the lands that we all enjoy. Oh, I love that. So cool. I not know about
2: the chef part. We might have to come back around. I know. I was just <laughs> I was just thinking that. I love it. Yeah. I'm like, maybe there's, maybe we're like the recipe of the episode.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's a really good call. I like that a lot.
2: Actually, what's the last thing that you cooked that you were really like pumped on?
3: The last thing I cooked, which is kind of my one of my go-tos when we have company, we had some new friends in Portland over. It's actually from the Run Fast Eat Slow cookbook. And it's this pasta with roasted butternut squash, and I usually add whatever other veggies I have. So this time I did some like sauteed kale, and then I also added some pancetta that I got all Mm. crispy. And then you make this brown butter sauce. The recipe calls for sage, but I just use whatever herbs i have and then you mix it all together and because the squash i use both butternut and acorn and so it kind of has like the sweetness to it and it almost creates this like creamy sauce with the butter and it's super simple but it's like always a crowd pleaser and it's always a hit and it's like one of my favorite fall dishes so
1: ah oh, yes right You not only chef but also food storyteller like the wow. way you just described that I'm like I'm very hungry and I just <laughs> ate so that <laughs> tells you how effective that was <laughs> that's wow. awesome I'm very, very fast eat slow cookbook is that right you said yes yeah exactly. okay I'll have to look that up that sounds I'm, incredible
2: I have it and I think I've never opened it so maybe this is the I know time about there.
1: it I don't have it but maybe I'll get it
2: there you go I was going to say I'm very impressed by people who, like, use cookbooks. Like, my sister has, like, a cookbook stand. And Mm -hmm. I'll be – she moved to Portland, you know, recently. And I'll, like, go over and she'll be like, oh, let me just see what I'm going to make today. And flips through a cookbook and sets it on the stand. And then, like, acts accordingly. And I'm always in (laughs)
3: shock and awe. I'm like, what? I will (laughs) say I'm not that that cookbook user. I'm more like, "Mm, I think I have these things. And then I close it. And then I like to figure it out. I think that's my favorite thing about cooking is like, you don't have to always follow the recipe exactly. So like this recipe didn't call for kale or pancetta. I just thought those flavors sounded good together. So yeah, I like to play in the kitchen a lot.
1: That's awesome. Well, now I want to follow the Camila cookbook because I want (laughs) to add those ingredients to this. So I'll use the like recipe that's in the cookbook, but then have your spin on it too. Awesome. Well, yeah, we may need to come back to that question and dive in a little deeper. Speaking of play, yeah. <laughs> great, you said
2: you like to play in the kitchen. Exactly. <laughs> <What>? Great
1: segue. Exactly. Great
3: segue.
2: We like to ask everyone this question of what does it mean to you when we say playing outside?
3: For me, I would say playing outside that's a really good question. And I know you asked this question and I I love it because I love hearing all the different answers people say, but for me playing outside is just like a sense of freedom and also a lot of imagination. I think that even if there's moments where I've like prescribed what I want to do outside, there's always a moment where I have to like think on my feet and figure something else out. And it kind of just reminds me of like, when I was a kid, my mom would very much encourage time outside, so much so that in the summer, she would like lock the screen door. So I had to stay outside, because she thought it was like, get out of the house. What are you doing in here? And I always just had to figure out some way to occupy myself. And that often involved playing and making things up. And I'm also an only child. So I spend a lot of time just in my head thinking through different scenarios or how things can come together. And I think on the trails or just outside in my neighborhood or outside with friends, like it's always different just depending on whatever mindset you have. Yeah. I, I don't know if that quite answers it, but that's kind of what comes to mind.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it really is like what it means for you. And that's why we love – I love that you've heard those answers before because we love hearing them on the the podcast. And a lot of times we get to learn about people's childhood. Like, it it honestly goes back to younger years a lot of the time. Like, I would say 95% of the time we really start to – it kind of like gets at – you know, it's essentially the same question as like, what was your relationship to the outdoors like when you were younger? (laughs) But we ask it in the form of play. So – No, I think it definitely answers it. And it's really cool to see how, you know, how those stories come to influence us now, like how we related to outdoor spaces either like does or doesn't look the same now. Like for me, it actually looks quite different than when I was younger, but it does have an influence, I think. Absolutely.
3: definitely,
2: Yeah, totally. I also was like sent outside a lot as a kid, (laughs) but I'm so grateful for it now, you know, but, yeah, it took a while to, like, learn what play as an adult could look like.
1: Gosh, where to begin? I feel like there's so many different angles we could go into. I think in terms of I, – I had a question, Camila, about going off of, like, you You had also some great pieces in your introduction of, like, there's environmentalism and then there's, you know, brand strategists and storyteller. Like, there's so many different elements to what you do. And I was just curious, like, if you could – elaborate a little bit on that work you do with brands and just sort of what that looks like for you and how that's you had an actually I I don't want to restate it because I think the way you said it was incredible having that kind of purpose or north star north star for you in the work you do in regards to representation in regards to creating spaces of belonging I was just wondering if you could speak a little bit more to that
3: definitely. It's interesting because well, I would definitely describe that as the work that I show up to do every day when I'm working with brands. It's actually never been a part of my job description. <laughs> I say that and I think there's probably a lot of underrepresented groups that might feel that when I say that of just when you show up to a space it might not be your exact role to have conversations about inclusion and belonging, but it ends up being something that's on your plate. But for me, I think it's not just something that has been added to my plate that I'm trying to push away and that I don't have an interest in. I think there really is a strong intersectionality between marketing and what is commonly referred to as DEI. And I don't know that the synergy between those has been quite unlocked yet. I would say marketing people come from like all different types of places before they end up in this job. And you can say you're a marketer and we can do completely different things because there are so many different ways to market a product, market an organization, try to bring people into a brand. But at the end of the day, for me, I feel best when I feel that the stories I'm sharing are those that people are proud to share that people feel seen by that makes them feel like they belong to something greater and that ultimately shift the power from corporations back to people because i think that so many brands have a platform they have an audience they have a microphone and that, that needs to be shared with those who are often unheard or less heard, or who are tokenized or only used it for visuals or only asked things for Black History Month or Latinx History Month or around holiday that pertains to the type of person that they are. And it just feels like there's always work that needs to be done in this space and it needs to be integrated from the beginning. It's not an add on at the end. So while my roles within different brands may not be specifically like DEI marketing strategist, that's a part of who I am. And that's just how I show up every day. And I feel that it's kind of my not so much Duty, but it's like just a part of me to have those conversations and try and ensure that at the end of the day, whatever we put out is something that allows someone else not just to be like visually represented, but to feel that they can be a part of something larger as we try to shift what has been typically seen in this industry as the outdoors. That's amazing. And
1: honestly, I wanted to just thank you both for your work in this area. I mean, Faith and I talk about this a lot. Like it is not your job to do this. It's not Faith's job. Like it's it's really amazing that you both and others in the space have taken on this as you I mean, you said it's not your duty, but like it's amazing that this work is something that you are driving forward because, you know, it comes back to this problem of like it isn't anyone's job and yet if no one's doing it then like can we start to see that change and honestly hopefully it's also a large part on the frankly the white folks in the space in the very homogenous industries in which we like run play recu- recreate occupy etc but i just i think that having folks like y'all in the space doing this work behind the lens in front of the lens i just It's really incredible to see it. It's in great hands with both of you and others like that is. And you, Camila, the work you've done has been really inspiring to watch from afar at these different brands and beyond. And it's an interesting thing because it's like, I know we also talk a lot about with Faith and I and others like about being the only or being the first. And I cannot imagine what that is like. And I mean, I can try to as an ally or a co-conspirator, but like I will never fully, truly know. And what it means to flip through a magazine and, or a flip through a running catalog and not see anyone that looks like me. Like it's, you know, that's the kind of, I know that's like a deep seated thing that it mean, needs to be changed and you're doing that work. It's really inspiring. So thank you for the work that you're doing.
3: Thank you for those kind words. It's definitely just a part of the job,
2: <laughs> I guess. Yeah.
3: But yeah, it's, it's been a, an interesting time to be in the space with just all of the awakening um, <laughs> as many refer to it that's been been happening so
2: yeah it, it's so strange and I think the strangeness is complicated by what like what you said Addie, in front of the lens and behind it because I think that there's a strangeness of positioning that of like literally using our own bodies and our own experiences too to have to like show and prove and exemplify why changes are needed. And I think it comes, you know, I say this a lot, but I think it comes back to this idea of like with privilege comes responsibility and people who come from historically and ongoing marginalized communities are usually that much more able to recognize their own privilege because they see inequity versus I think when you have been like living a life where you haven't needed to see inequity, the process of then realizing the privilege that you have and like harnessing it for a greater good or harnessing for change is one that is often a very difficult, but be like also unwelcome. So it's so strange to be in this space where like, okay, you're in, you're with much effort, right? (laughs) Like getting access to these spaces. And then when in those spaces, whether it be running at a certain level or like working within a certain industry and sphere and being in like an inner circle of decision-making or and weighing in on decision-making, there's so much effort to just get there. And then when you're there, you don't get to just like be the way that others are, right? Like you're showing up to every start line with more in terms of identity with more, in terms of a sense of just an understanding of what the world is like, and then having to carry that weight with you too, whether it's literally running through the race with it or whether it's like mustering the energy and the confidence to like raise your hand and say a thing when a thing clearly needs to be said, but no one else in the room is going to say it. And I like you know, speak from my own experience as well with those things where sometimes it's like, exhausting. And at the same time, if you don't say it, things can go out into the world from a marketing standpoint that just lack perspective, or that can be harmful to a community, or that can just be really simplistic and like, don't create nuance. So there's all of that. I feel like I'm but there's all of that. And then there's the like, physically, your own body, right? Because I think for you and for myself, like, it's often images of us, or it's like, writing that we're doing that's personal writing that's paired with images of us there's this other way of like putting yourself out there for a larger purpose but it also like backlash happens right there's people that are like you know responding on twitter or like adding comments to the magazines or like telling whoever the platform is that they don't agree with having to talk about politics or having to talk about race in this space and why are you trying to ruin my magazines. So it's, it's like very bizarro. I would agree these times that we're that we're living in.
3: Yes, so so much of that resonates. And it it is it's bizarre, and it's strange. And sometimes it is like I, I exist in these spaces that at one point, I almost feel like, because there wasn't so much of a spotlight, on this work, they were like, my internal conversations, like, of course, I noticed if I was an only in a space, but it wasn't really discussed. And now it's almost like the pendulum has swung the entire other direction. And it's like the topic of discussions in places where like, I never thought these discussions would happen. And while I'm thankful for those safe places where it can be helpful and it can help build and it can be something that's necessary. There's also a lot of unsafe spaces that exist now because there's a certain level of like comfort that people have in discussing certain things and that can lead to awkwardness. And like, it feels heavy in a way as well. So it's like constantly having to assess like where I am, who is here I need to say this. It might not be received well. How do I say it in a way that, like, puts others' comfort first, but I need to put my comfort first? But, like, it's a constant mind (laughs) game. And for someone who already spends, like, way too much time in their head overthinking and, like, people pleasing, it's draining. (laughs) And I've found that it's something that I have to, like, sometimes just take a step back from and, that like navigating all of that, I don't know how to do it perfectly. I don't think anyone does, but it's just a a weight that is constant. <laughs> so I think finding those outlets for like joy and play are especially important right now. Yeah.
2: Wow. The way that you just said that of like, it feels like the conversations you've always been having in your head have come out into public space and that that's often uncomfortable like that totally resonates with me and it's very strange to go from talking about it and thinking about it yourself to suddenly it's like the topic of a panel and you're like whoa whoa is everyone here in the audience even like trying to have this conversation because sometimes they're not and then that's Mm -hmm. like really uncomfortable too It's a very strange navigation, but I I feel that too. It's like suddenly your internal dialogue is being listened to, investigated, desired Mm -hmm. in a way it never has been before. It's very strange.
1: That's so interesting. Thank you both for sharing this because I think that like this is the kind of thing that I'm learning as
2: we're talking right now. It's interesting to me because I feel like what we're talking about is – learning how to take up space and and when to share it and it makes me think of like this I think I was in I can't remember what kind of meeting I was in that was being run by someone who was a DEI specialist and as we were setting community agreements at the beginning it was like basically talking about like step up step back step aside and I think we've talked about this before but in terms of like sharing power and sharing space knowing and it is not easy to to learn but knowing when to step up and speak and potentially sometimes that's like when your voice is going to be heard the most and you need to speak for yourself and others step aside which is like sometimes it's creating space for someone who maybe doesn't have as much power in the space might be going back and saying like actually so-and-so had a really good point or maybe that person wasn't being listened to and being like, actually, so as so-and-so was saying earlier, I think like, so giving like, you know, acknowledging what people are saying or set back, which is like, this isn't the time for me to be leading this conversation. This is the time for me to be listening. And I think learning that is very difficult, but that feels like one of the new skills that people are being asked to, to learn and like move to and it's you know for me and it's not even just for like white men but i think like that's that's a space where it's like okay work on being aware of the amount of space you're taking up in a room and like i think people bristle at that cuz they're like what does that even freaking mean about how much space i take up like we're not literally talking about your physical body most of the time right except it's like but it's also like you're learning that, and then it's also learning. Like I, most of the time, will answer a question. Like I personally, most of the time will will raise my hand or I will respond or I will weigh in. And when I find myself in a group where maybe others aren't as ready, some I'm like learn. Like maybe I can I can create space by saying, "Did anyone else like?" have something they want to say, or just by not speaking first, right, and, and waiting and creating the uncomfortable tension where maybe someone else is like, okay, I need to say this thing because it's not going to be said. But so I don't know. I, I think what I'm trying to say is as we're talking about the quote unquote awakening or the quote unquote reckoning that's happened, it asks a lot of people of color because we're the ones that are immediately looked to and turned to to answer the questions. But I think, as we're also saying, it asks a lot of white people or people that in other ways have historically held levels of power and privilege to learn what does it mean to wield that power and privilege.
3: Yeah, I resonate with so much of what you're saying, Faith. And it's interesting because I am probably that person that sometimes is in a room and does not speak. Not because I don't have anything to say, but because the way that I process information is very different. And I'm often full of thoughts after a meeting. I'm like a really great (laughs) follow-upper. Like I can eloquently write an email that summarizes like everything that was said or that could be changed or my thoughts because I'm an observer by nature. It's just kind of always been who I am. I like to people watch, I like to read the comments on posts for better or worse. I enjoy, like observing people from just being out and about to like watching a trashy reality TV show and just trying to figure out like why their minds work the way that they do. And so in a lot of these conversations, when things get like, too heavy, I, again, go back to my internal monologue of like, okay, what is this person trying to say, even if it's not coming out like that? Or what is the end goal? Or what are the commonalities and the things that are being said by this group as a collective? And how do we move forward? And like, that's just how my brain is working. And it's taken me a long time to be comfortable even saying that. And it's taken me a long time to get to a point where when I start a new position, I will often tell my manager, it's not that I'm not paying attention. It's not that I have nothing to say. This is just how I process information in order to help us close loops and like move things forward. So I very much appreciate when there's someone like you, Faith, in a room who checks in to see if at the end of a talk or at the end of a meeting, someone else has something to say, because I typically will. I just don't take up space in the same way that others may in those situations. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, it's really
1: fascinating to hear both of you talk about this because I think it goes back to what you said, Faith, about with great privilege comes great responsibility. It's like that whole idea of passing the mic, right? We talked about this with Jose Gonzalez, like what power are you willing to give up and who do, who do you want to, Bring into the space, and actually, not to. <laughs> hopefully, this isn't embarrassing you in any way, Camila. But I saw you speak on a panel a couple of weeks ago at the Mammoth Trail Fest, and I just really appreciated that you know you were bringing a variety of different perspectives to this this panel, and at the same time, like your own experience as a Black woman in the outdoors, and you were also talking about indigenous lands and how the lands were forcibly stolen from tribes. Like, and I, I just was, I was so struck by you were using the power and, and, you know, the platform you had as a speaker that day to also shed light on other oppressed communities. And that, that to me is a perfect example. I mean, like faith, faith work with cultural appropriation and fashion and other indigenous co-conspirator allyship work you've done. Like both of you, I think like just really exemplify the ability to share your own experience. And again, which is like way above and beyond, and yet also find the time and energy and space to advocate on behalf of other communities. So I just I think it's fascinating to see this work happen.
2: As we sit here recording this podcast, I look to my right and I see not one, but two Patagonia Black Hole duffel bags. And I know that inside is yet another (laughs) Black Hole Patagonia organizing cube. This sounds very familiar.
1: People are constantly making fun of me for having every size imaginable of the Black Hole bags. My toiletry bag, my backpack, which is also sitting next to me right now as well. And three different duffel sizes So you could basically call me obsessed People do
2: Same Uh, I have a shiny red one I have a shiny purple one I gave away another shiny green one (laughs) (laughs) And I have a shiny olive green backpack version um, That is my favorite carry-on And I have to say one thing I love about them Is that I can always find my bag super easily At the baggage claim Yeah And they have options with wheels
1: my favorite thing is that with Patagonia's Wear program, you technically never have to buy another bag because you can just send it in for free. Over the course of five years of having my original black hole backpack, I got mine repaired a few times and finally they just gave me a new one. So basically I've had the same bag since 2014, which I'm really proud of.
2: So impressive. <laughs> yeah, they're durable. They fit everything. Get it? It's a black hole. That's the thing. <laughs> And they're made with 100% recycled body fabric, lining, and webbing.
1: What we're saying is five stars from the trail ahead, 10 out of 10 would recommend.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Check out Patagonia's Black Hole Bags, learn more about Patagonia's sustainability, and find ways to get involved in your local community with Patagonia Action Works, all at patagonia.com. I mean, I'd love for folks that know nothing about you, Camila, maybe talk a little bit about your journey as a runner, some background in it, and maybe what you enjoy about it. And then maybe we can talk about like where you're at now in terms of your relationship with running.
3: Yes. So let's see now. I've been, I guess what, stereotypically, or I don't know, within the space you say is a a runner. Half my life now, I started running when i was 14 my freshman year of high school the reason i started running was one i always just loved like the feeling of going fast and being outdoors as a kid like tag capture the flag like race you across the field like those were my my jams tried soccer my favorite part of soccer was the running It always kind of felt like something that I had interest in. But when I was in eighth grade, my family relocated back to Southern California uh, from Maryland. I was born in Southern California. I moved to the East Coast when I was eight. I moved back March of eighth grade, a really hard time to move. And when I started at my new middle school, I basically had, what, three, four Four months to like make friends before high school. And one of my friends told me that cross country was just like track and field. It's not. But I didn't know that. And so I checked the box for cross country on the form that my mom had already signed that said I wanted to do track. The next thing I knew summer was starting and I got a big packet of forms in my mailbox and was told to show up for practice all summer long. And my mom looked and she's like, are you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yeah, like my only friend is doing it. (laughs) Like I'm going to go. So, as preparation for cross country summer camp, I told my mom I needed to run a little bit because I'd only ever run like the mile in school. I wasn't super fast or anything. So, my run was half a mile downhill to the donut shop where my mom was awaiting to pick me up to drive me back home. Those were my first actual like runs, but I took to the sport of cross country. I really enjoyed it. I mostly enjoyed that it was something that I did outside with my friends. I think pretty much all of my friends were on the cross country team. I also am super competitive. I don't want to say to a fault, but maybe. So I loved racing. I love that me and my two best friends were always like fighting for like first, second or third, just between our friend group. But it was always something that was fun and we enjoyed it. And it wasn't until I got to track after a fall season of goofing off, I carried that goof off, have fun nature into track, but started running considerably quicker than my friends. I think my freshman year, I must have run in maybe like the 540s for the mile or something. And my coach decided at that point that I needed to run with a different group. Long story short, I ended up running pretty decently in high school loved cross country cross country and track were my everything like i loved the people i loved the teammates i loved my friends i loved the friends that i made just at practice that i didn't even hang out with outside of the sport but i enjoyed sharing miles with them i loved being inspired by our female assistant coach. I loved that she brought her kids and we pushed them in the stroller on our runs like it was just the best family. And then, yeah, I went on to run in college. That was a bit harder. I never quite found my footing. I struggled with anemia. I struggled with understanding my body and how it was changing and I took time off. I graduated my junior year, stopped running completely. <laughs> no running for a couple years. And then I started coaching high school cross country and track, which brought back all of the wonderful memories of high school running, and ultimately led me back into the sport. And so I've definitely had this kind of up and down of like, I'm running all the time, or I'm not running at all, or I love running, or I don't love running. But I would say the consistency of what I've kind of realized is I enjoy moving my body. I enjoy being social with my friends and I really love to compete. So yeah, that's, I guess, in a nutshell,
2: me as a runner. It's super cool. And it's, it's interesting If like, yeah, I resonate with a lot of that and I love your first runs being like down to the donut shop and then like <laughs> coming home with your mom. I, I definitely like, When I started running cross country in high school, it was essentially like my track coach made me do it. And I had no idea like distances and and things like that. But later on in my life, actually, when I started running longer distances, like running to a place that was fun was a huge motivator for me Mm -hmm. of being like, I'm going to run to the donut shop. And I was living in New York at the time. And so it was like so easy to just like hop on the train back or like figure out how to get my way back without actually having to run. (laughs) That (laughs) was like ideal. But yeah, there's there's like also a lot of pressure. And when your body changes or you deal with injuries or all those things, like that core sense of identity that comes from being part of a group can be really altered too. So it's not always like... Simple and straightforward. If performance is a part of it, but it's maybe not the same, the whole reason you're there. But then, like, if the performance gets threatened or altered in any way, like all the other things that are a part of it kind of feel under threat, which can be difficult.
3: I really struggled with that coming from like, I mean, in high school, I was running like 60, 70 mile weeks and running really well and really competitively. And anemia is a really sneaky, kind of like, it's not an injury. Uh-huh. Your body is like slowly refusing to do what you're asking of it. And for that to happen at the point that it felt like running was who I was and running fast was a part of who I was. And now I had a new team that only knew me on paper, uh-huh. but never actually seen me compete at the level that I was like, supposed to, I mean, you get recruited, (laughs) like you're to a place to perform at a certain level. So for me, I really struggled with trying to understand like, why my body was failing me, which brought me to the point of like, counting every calorie that I consumed and like portioning out all of my meals and like going to the gym late at night to try and figure out like, well, it must be like this extra like couple pounds, or it must be that I'm not strong enough, or it must be that I'm not running enough or something. And in a weird way, that experience of me basically not fueling my body led to a practice where I almost passed out at the end because I wasn't feeling and my coach being like, Hmm, something's not quite right here. And he sent me to the sports psychologist. And while initially I went to the sports psychologist to try and master my disordered eating. I ended up using all of those therapy sessions. Once we got past that to figure out who I was, if not a runner, Mm. And it really like, released a lot of the pressure I was putting on myself because it allowed me to talk through like, what else was going on in my life? And how else did I exist in this space? And like, if I didn't have running, who would I be? And it's not that running isn't a part of me, but it doesn't have to be the number one. Like my friends like me because I run. My boyfriend likes me because I run. It was like there's other pieces of myself. So I started going to therapy when I was 19 years old and now I'm 30 and I still go to therapy and it's like the best thing that I think I could have hoped for is knowing that it's okay to talk through things and just figuring out who we are as people. So in a way, all of that distress also brought me something that I'm really thankful for. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) I started going to
2: therapy about two years ago. And then part of that has also been for me running this, like unpacking identity around running, which was like so central to my life and trying to figure out how it can be a part of my life and it can be something I love, but it doesn't have to be everything. So cool that that is a practice that you started at the age of 19. And I think it's really maybe important and interesting to note that like, it's not a, like, I'll say in college, I think I went through a therapist twice. Like I went and I just dumped everything on them and I was like, cool, I feel better. I'm not going back. And like, no, like 10 years practice, however long it is to have to be able to talk through some things. Like it's so good to be able to unpack that. So I'm happy. For you and your therapy journey. <laughs> I am a big like proponent of therapy. I might like add some resources on where people can like start yeah, their therapy journey definitely. on this because I think it's something that's like really important. And it's it doesn't have to be like, oh I'm broken, so I have to go to therapy. Like yeah. Totally. I think it's a really hard one to talk about. And like, you know, in college I I was the captain of the track team. And in spring, that also meant that everyone that ran cross country and everyone was then transitioning to be like our distant side of the squad was I was their captain suddenly and cross had just by the nature of how much you're running. And there was a lot more disordered eating on the distant side. And it was something that I was really unprepared to be like trying to Address and I think like having the team talk to a nutritionist was one part, but that sports psychologist part would have been really helpful. Cause I think when you are holding your identity so close to performance, you do think you can fix it. Like you do mm-hmm. think that if you eat the right thing or eat the last of the what you perceive to be the wrong thing or build some arm muscle or whatever it is that you can fix it. And like most of the time you can't, you can't. Mm-hmm on your own. But it's hard. I, I do want to shout out a recent film called This is Beth. Um, maybe I'll be able to link to if it's out too. But it's about Beth Roden's struggle with disordered eating as a climbing athlete at a really high level. And I just think um,
3: it's really great to see more narratives of that coming into the open. Yes. And I, I definitely think that for me for a long time, I was like, well, I don't even share about my disordered eating because it doesn't feel serious enough. But I think it's important to to be open in those conversations and maybe just to share that it's something that a lot more people struggle with than I think we're ever really realizing. Mm -hmm. Because you do, you have to like learn to eat all over again at like a grown adult age, or maybe you're younger or whatnot. For me, I was I felt like I was an adult And I had to like learn how to eat again. So it is definitely something that I think, especially in the sport of distance runner, there's a lot of it that just doesn't go discussed.
1: I wanted to respond with also just thanking you again. I feel like I'm thanking you a lot because there's a lot to thank you for, Camila, like for just talking about this. Cause I think that this is something that is extremely taboo in Mm a lot of our just like these distance running sports and like, it sounds like it is as well for in ultra running. It definitely exists. And I think in addition to the film that faith mentioned, I just also saw the, the film that Deuster made film about Tim Tollison, who's a ultra runner in the ultra community. And um, who also hosted mammoth trail fest. This all ties in together. It was just about, you know, he talks about body dysmorphia and, like needing to change the way you look and like being on presentation and like not just feeling into your body but also like what others are thinking of it it just i mean it made me so emotional to watch that because and yet so proud at the same time, like I'm so grateful to him for talking about that, and I'm grateful to you both for talking about it too like it's like we need to all be talking about it, I think a lot more, and I just want to destigmatize and de taboo <laughs> this topic because. I think the more we talk about it, the more it will feel like, yeah, folks are not alone. And like also on the therapy topic, like folks can seek help too. Mm -hmm. And there is a way out. And like hearing some of the statements, I just will link to that film too. Like I encourage folks to watch that as well. It's hard, especially if you've ever gone through anything like this. It's very hard to watch. And I think just because some of the things that he describes, like – or like have had someone in your life that has struggled with some things like this, you know, it's just, it's very raw. It's very real. And I was, but also was really appreciative to him and the team that made it because it does start to, you know, bring these things into main, the mainstream discourse in the ultra community and beyond. I don't know how mainstream any of the ultra community is, but like, you know, that, that for me is like a really important part of this, this dialogue. Regarding. I can't wait to
2: see that film too. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Also it sounds like Camila I wanted to I mean it sounds like you both chatted about this recently but Pat like on the topic of past being a runner and like not not always running like it sounds like you've started biking a little bit more it's really interesting as we're talking about like the identity of a runner and like what does it mean to be a runner what is a runner who is a runner And am I a runner? Like, it's very interesting topics. And at the same time, there's so many other components to being an athlete and moving your body through spaces and landscapes. So I was curious to hear more about your journey with biking and like other activities you've picked up.
3: Yes, I would definitely have to give a lot of credit to my husband for the plethora of activities I now do outside of running. Uh, He grew up in the French Alps and is the epitome of just like an endurance athlete. We also just have really different mindsets, I think, when it comes to being active.
2: One of the things I love about spending time outside are all of the lessons we learn from the world around us, like the fact that the sun always comes back out after a storm, Or how even if an early snow happens, often those budding flowers can shake it off and still bloom to welcome spring. Or how a hike or a run might seem impossible if you look at it all at once. But when you take it step by step, go your own pace and just put one foot in front of the other, you can get there and surprise yourself. Take your next step in the outdoors and do it with a trusted friend, Meryl. One trail, and that trail is for everyone. Learn more at Merrill.com. And if it's your first time shopping with Meryl, take 20% off your gear with the code Ahead 20
3: For me, as I mentioned, I'm rather competitive. And for him, he just really loves trading. He loves what it does for his body, and he loves that his body can take him places Ironically, he jokes and then I say he jokes and then he says it's not a joke because it's true that when we started dating, I kind of stopped running. So we found other activities to do. I got a gravel bike, ironically, like right before COVID started and everyone bought bikes. So I got lucky in that sense that bikes used to just be in stock and you could buy them when you wanted to. And despite having always had a bike in college and used it for short commutes and whatnot, I kind of felt like I was learning how to ride a bike all over again, learning that you didn't have to sprint up every hill, but sometimes you just slow down and you shift your gears and you take your time. Learning that I could bike 20 miles or 30 miles or 50 miles or 60 miles and my main purpose for biking is to do the same things i look forward to with running in a way i found i needed space from running but i really just want it to be social with my friends and like keep up with them that's pretty much why i do sport and i'm slowly figuring that out biking is a great mode of transport cuz you can go so much further and we've done some bikepacking trips we've done them where like We pack all of our stuff and we go camping and we carry everything on our bike. And we've also did what we called like a bougie bike camping trip with our friends, Jim and Jess. And we stayed in bed and breakfast, but we still carried like clothes and gear and stuff on our bikes. And we went wine tasting. And it was the furthest I'd ever biked in a day, done multiple days in a row. So like my biggest biking week ever. But it was so much fun because there was like a purpose. It was a vacation. We were spending time together. We were drinking wine. We were enjoying the California coast. And it was probably one of the hardest things I've done. But also like the least exhausted I've been at the end of a vacation, which sounds weird. But you know, when you cram too much into a vacation, and then you feel like you need a vacation after your vacation, because you were just running around, (laughs) this was just like, relaxing in a way, like I knew I had to get on my bike. I knew I had to get somewhere. I knew there was no other way to get there, but biking. And I also knew we were going to have like a nice dinner and a glass of wine and a comfy bed. And then we would do it again the next day. So yeah, I've really enjoyed those kinds of moments on the bike. I'm definitely thankful that I'm trying new sports, even though I'm really bad at them, because it kind of, I have to turn off that competitive side of my brain. Like when I go skiing, I'm not a great skier, so I can't really compete with most of the people on the mountain. So instead, I just get to focus on my experience and why I'm there and who I'm with. And I think finding those reasons in sport is kind of what keeps me coming back to it. I
2: love that. I also love the fact that like that's part of the beauty of doing other things like me too. Like I'm so competitive in anything that I'm good at, (laughs) but if I'm not, then I get to just like try and fail and fall and get up and learn and make progress and be excited about that progress, you know, whether it's biking or skiing we can go be bad at those things together since we (laughs) now live in the same place Mm -hmm. but I also want your route I'm like that that sounds great I'm like let's do it sign me up (laughs) yes I'd love that I think that is one of the beautiful things about spending time outside and these outdoor activities like obviously even having time for leisure having time to rest comes with a certain amount of access and privilege. And like, I have a lot of gratitude for in many places in your adult life, you don't get a chance to try and fail. You don't get a chance to do something new. Like you're expected to be an expert in everything. And I think those are like one of the lessons that we can take from spending time outside is like, it can be hard, and that can be okay. And like, you can not be pro or not be expert. And that can be okay. Like, I really appreciate those, like, reminders of vulnerability and like, newness that I get from spending time outside.
3: Yes, I definitely think kind of coming back to what it means to like, belong to the outdoors and show belonging. It's acknowledging that a plethora of experiences exist in this space, and it's not always just about the pinnacle or the best or the fastest, but there's so much more that the outdoors give us in terms of just recharging and recentering and finding community and feeling like you're, you're a part of something. And for me, I definitely think that I've felt comfortable trying a lot of these new things because the people around me have been so supportive and welcoming and you think like well why would people not be but people aren't always supportive and welcoming like there's there's a lot of stigma around who belongs in certain spaces and who doesn't but I'm really I guess in my case, sometimes I find that with running, it was easier to show up to spaces because I was good at it. And so I kind of felt like I could show up to start line and like I belong because I'm fast. And with biking or skiing, it especially with skiing, it's a journey in like accepting that I'm taking up space somewhere where like, I could be seen as an annoyance or someone that like shouldn't be there because I'm not getting down the mountain as fast as someone else. Or I might not always remember the exact way that I'm supposed to do something and just kind of like reminding myself to release that and just be present in the moments that I'm creating in the space.
2: Yes. And also those people making you feel that way, needing to release that. It's like, at yes. <laughs> some point, everyone was a newbie. At some point, everyone was learning and like learning and being in a learning space shouldn't be seen as an annoyance to someone else. It's like, oh, I'm sorry. Did you just come out of the womb knowing how to ski? Like, <laughs> fuck uh, you! you know, like <laughs> that is so crazy. And people being like, oh, you're not holding your skis right or like oh you're not you know with like fishing it's like I think it's so funny because I I'll like you know I I fly fish and I can be like hard on myself when my cast is like not doing what I want it to do and then I love like I was out fishing recently and my friend who's a guide was like bugs in the water right and I was like sure is (laughs) you know like bugs in the water Fish can't see your stupid cast anyway. Like maybe they'll bite it. Maybe they won't. But all of this like stuff around, I don't know. I've been really excited about different conversation I've had about creating a different culture in the outdoors that can be welcoming and inciting and like the stoke doesn't necessarily need to be because it's like a sick pow day, but the stoke can be like, because somebody is having a great time or doing something new and that that is like as exciting, you know, and I don't Mm -hmm. know, I hope we can like actually figure out ways to create space for each other. Yeah. And, and celebrate each other.
1: I also wanted to ask you just if you have other pieces we haven't touched on or If there were, you know, I know you've had a lot of conversations that are recorded and out in the world, but like, I wonder just if there are things that my guess is you get asked about running a lot, (laughs) but like, I love that you're also a chef and you also mentioned environmentalists, which is obviously very clear through your work with runners for public lands and, you know, other things that you're involved with, but just wanted to ask you like an open-ended question of like, what do you wish people asked you? Or like, what do you want? What do you want to talk about that we
3: haven't talked about today? It's funny, because the first thing that comes to mind isn't so much a question. It's almost just like my, I don't know, self anxiety that like perpetually exists. These words might come out a bit sloppy. But I feel like for myself, personally, I have spent a lot of time talking about running. And I've spent a lot of time talking about belonging in outdoor spaces. And I've spent a bit of time talking about the environment or whatnot. And more so than there being like a specific topic that I feel like I don't get asked about. I think what I sometimes struggle with is just the the fact that myself and everyone else is intersectional. and is full of a variety of different pieces that allow them to show up in a variety of different spaces in different ways. Even for me, I'm like playing back all of the different things we've talked about. And what my like, linear, analytical, like marketing mind says is like, what is the thread of this story? Because we've touched on so many different pieces. We've touched a little bit on running. We've touched a little bit on the environment. We've touched a little bit on race. We've touched a little bit on disordered eating. We've touched on youth and play and the outdoors. And I was thinking as we were speaking, like, well, what is the thread? And then it sounds really cheesy, but I was like, well, the thread is me. (laughs) Like, they're all pieces of me that have allowed me to... Get to the point I'm at. And I think something I've honestly really struggled with since the awakening of 2020, when it felt like a lot of people realized that I was a Black distance runner, something that I had realized for most of my life, was that (laughs) it felt like people were trying to put me in some sort of a, a box of you belong here, and these are the stories you tell, and these are the spaces where you exist. And I think social media does a lot of that to us where we feel like we have to show up in a certain way to the people that are following or the people that are paying attention or you show up in a certain way at work or with your friends or whatnot. And I've just kind of been challenging myself to allow myself to just be and to accept that maybe one day I'm on a panel talking about... Public lands and how there's a need to acknowledge that they're all actually stolen lands and being a voice for people that were not on that panel. And some days I'm commuting to grab a donut in Portland because it's something that sounds great that day. And some days I'm binge watching Netflix on the couch and some days I'm cooking a delicious meal. But it's all of these different experiences that allow me to be me. And I don't know if I'm going anywhere with that. But I just, I often think about that when I'm speaking on a podcast, or when I'm writing something, or when I'm meeting someone, and I'm asked, like, how do I describe myself? Because all of these pieces together are what make me me. So there's probably something I've forgotten or something else that we could touch on. But in general, I'm really just thankful for the space to talk through a variety of different pieces. And maybe there's some things in here that I haven't discussed before. And yeah, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but yeah. that's just kind of what came came to mind.
1: No, that's awesome. As you were saying that, you're like, what's the thread? And in my head, I was like, it's you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad we had the same connection there. No, that's so awesome, Camila. And I just, I mean, I'm so glad we could provide that space. And, you know, there's, I, I think it is really easy to put, I mean, we do it all the time. Faith and I talk about introductions and we sort of like removed all the like titles and like when we introduced ourselves on the podcast recently, I I think, you know, yeah, I I said totally different things from what I usually do just because when you strip away these components, it's like, what am I and, and you know, what or who, like what titles do I have or whatever? And it's so easy to put people in like certain boxes and be like oh this guest this week is this I and mean, we do this on the podcast we'll probably do this intro for you but like but like what's so funny about that is that there's so much you know i think like it was it jose faith that's like becoming the multitudes of you discovering the multitudes of you like all the and we just talked to patagonia like all the different identities that folks bring on this podcast each and every time we talk to someone it is so great to be able to say like yeah you're you're a runner and also like we know that you know, you're so much more or like, or what do you identify as like, what is most exciting to you these days? And sometimes we have folks on that, like, maybe I'll have a preconceived notion about what we're going to talk about. And then like jokes on me, because what they want to talk about is vastly different. And like, we want to create that space. I'm so glad we got to, I mean, I loved getting to know you better. And like, yeah, you are the thread. And I'm so happy that that, uh, this created that space. And it's also
3: such a joy to have you on with us. So thank you. Thank you.
2: I loved I was on the a panel with grace anderson who we will hopefully have on the pod sometime soon a few years ago and we both were like talking about bios and intros and then we both did this exercise of rewriting our bios it was really fun and like we basically took out anything that was like a (laughs) typical thing to include and it was like I talk about like my favorite authors and the feelings that I like, you know? And I think that's like, I I really appreciate Noelle Russell for that too, because she, well, I was recently like on another prep call with her and she's like, introduce yourself in whatever way you'd like. And maybe that's like, she's just basically like, I think like what your pets names are and what you like to eat feels as important (laughs) as anything else. And I'm like, yeah, like I, my name is Faith. I have a dog named Moses and I really love. Green grapes. Like that is valid (laughs) as well. You know, I could bring in like all these other facets of conversation that wouldn't happen if I was like, I am a runner and I host a podcast and like I make films, you know, kind of thing. So yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you for being here with us, for sharing so many different aspects of yourself. It's just like great to be able to wax and wane, (laughs) I think, together and like talk about these different
3: things. Thank you for having me on. Really appreciate it.
2: This is The Debrief, and we're very excited um, after months of trying to plan to have you join us. Sarah, would you introduce yourself in whatever way you normally would or however you're feeling today?
4: Yeah. Okay. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm excited to talk with you about this topic. It's uh, obviously close to my heart and I have a lot of thoughts about it. So I'll try to be brief in this debrief. But I'm Sarah Jaquette-Ray and I'm a professor and chair of the environmental studies department at Cal Poly Humboldt in Arcata, California on Wiat territory far north in the Redwoods. Yeah. I'm an author of a book that came out in 2020 called A Field Guide to Climate Anxiety, How to Keep Your Cool on a Warming Planet. Amazing. We're like so excited because we're like, we've been wanting to talk about
2: this and you've literally wrote the book on it.
4: <laughs> I like to think that I had something to offer there and I couldn't believe it in the middle of writing it that the youth climate strikes happened in 2019. I said, oh, it's not just my students who feel this way. There's a whole generation out there. So it was both validating and and of course, uh, a little bit heartbreaking. <laughs> yeah,
1: of course. And I know that we came across you and an article that you wrote that Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson actually posted online. But before we get into the article, because I know that goes a little bit in a little bit different of a direction or kind of dives into some of the nuances of eco-anxiety, of climate anxiety. Can you give us a definition in your words of what climate anxiety is?
4: Sure. That's always a funny question, right? Because you're thinking, oh, I've been thinking about this for so long. I ought to have one right off the top of my head. You know, it's not that clear. It's actually really, really up in the air, of course. And You know, if you want to go really basic on the most simplistic direction, you can take the American Psychological Association's definition of eco-anxiety as the chronic fear of environmental doom. But I think uh, not to go off on too far, but climate anxiety has become kind of a catch all term for a lot of different emotions and shorthand for just if you're feeling a lot of big feelings like scared and afraid and anxious and depressed and heartbroken and grieving and all of the rest anger all of it is kind of clustered underneath that that umbrella term just because it's been such an easy term to that's grabbed on to pop culture pretty pretty quickly
2: i think it's come up quite a bit in the podcast with different guests who express feeling eco anxiety and i think in one of the ways that it shows up is this this feeling of not knowing how to take action, not knowing what to do, feeling stuck in the grocery store when trying to decide like which packaging to bring home or not, or, and I think in bigger ways, which is still like an everyday thing of like, I didn't want to be in this store for this long and now I'm here like struggling. And then I've had other friends, you know, once again in the place of decision-making being like, I don't know if I want to have kids. Like I if What if the best thing I can do for the environment is, is not to become a mother? And so I think it's shown up in all these different ways. And I wonder, um, when you were writing the book, what what prompted you and what were you trying to get across?
4: Yeah, that range of things absolutely all underneath the category of climate anxiety. You know, even even people say under climate anxiety, we ca- we categorize things like experiencing actual trauma of having your community have to move because of sea level rise and the anxieties that that causes. And, you know, something like being in the grocery store trying to figure out the packaging or something like having a child And all of these things are quite varied. I mean, they're they're hugely different in terms of the immediacy of the threat, the intensity of the threat, the temporal scale of the threat. And so it doesn't really do them all a service to cluster them all into one category. So you're getting a little bit at where we're going to go here about thinking about the kind of racial and demographic uh, nuances around the term that we might want to be pushing. But yeah, what I wanted to do with the book basically was I saw... The generation of students that I had been teaching for a few years, increasingly as a phenomenon, not just a one-off student, but whole clusters of them and the whole class, finding themselves emotionally not equipped to go to classes, do their homework, save the world, whatever it is that they were trying to do, and that we were promising on our you know, websites and brochures and stuff, come to this program and learn how to do all this awesome stuff and be a climate warrior or whatever. And they were not anywhere near that, you know, because they were just so despaired and anguished and almost to the point of some point, students would get even apathetic and or even nihilistic. And that existential uh, emotional story, of response that they were having to information about the climate emergency started to really concern me. And I wrote the book as a way to research and then try to translate the research into for young people, for college-age students, to be able to get all that research synthesized in a digestible package, you know, about to answer the question of what is existentially needed in this moment to rise to the occasion of the climate crisis. Because obviously not showing up to class, much less being able to participate in collective activism is not going to get us anywhere. <laughs> so, so what did the planet need from us emotionally to have that inner resolve, that inner stamina, that inner resilience, if you will, to carry on the work for our lives? And uh, I turn, I turned the lens inward, you know, and realized, oh, I, I had thought that inner work was uh, surplus to requirements or could, we could do that stuff after the revolution. But it turns out that many wisdom traditions and many social movements will tell you that if you're not taking care of your heart and body, there is no resistance movement to speak of. You know, that is actually the fuel of the movement. And so I realized, oh gosh, my students are burning themselves out worrying about this before they've even taken part in in trying to change something. So it will become a self fulfilling prophecy. All this doom and gloom they're hearing is going to depress them so much that they're not going to be able to even try to. Battle that doom and gloom. And then where are we going to be left? You know? So that was my concern. I was really worried about the planet and also my students. (laughs) Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I mean, I think I've certainly seen it working with being fortunate enough myself to work with some youth climate activists. I've certainly seen it drive them forward and really deeply concern. And it's not just a youth phenomenon, I guess, but it's it's really interesting how it shows up there. And I mean, to the point of we know. I, Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson also has her Venn diagram that she speaks of very often, where it's what is needed in the climate fight, in this climate work. What are you good at specifically? And then the third one is what brings you joy? Because her whole thing, same as what you just said, is if we're burning ourselves out, if it's not sustainable work from a joy and fulfillment perspective, that's not sustainable in the long run. And I know that finding something that brings you joy is also different than being anxious about a changing climate. But even navigating that sort of fine line there is quite interesting.
4: Yeah. And and you think about the people that you talk to who are spending a lot of times out in nature and outdoors. And a lot of times as a psychologist, the sort of standard line for coping with climate anxiety is make sure you spend some time in nature in addition to other things. And I think that really is a complex Prescription because, of course, spending the time in nature also can be very triggering for people who feel, uh, who can really feel almost empathically, nature's being threatened, right? And you're out there and you're thinking, these birds are so beautiful, but they're going to die. You know, I mean, it's a sense sense of real doom, even in being in nature. So uh, it complicates things a bit. Yeah. I have a lot to.
1: Absolutely. And and well, no, I mean, just to your point about, you know, indigenous communities watching their lands change or people, those who are very, very tied to the land and have seen these changes very visibly over the past, however many, well, since time immemorial, certainly, but like over the past few decades, more yeah. concretely. So I yeah, that's super interesting. I mean, I think on that topic, this is where we, we maybe dive a little bit deeper, because when Faith and I came across your work, again, it was something that we saw that Ayana posted, it was your article called climate anxiety is an overwhelmingly white phenomenon. And of course, both Faith and I were like, "Wait a minute, we need to read this. This is fascinating. What does this mean?" Yeah, I mean, I would, I'd love to hear a little bit more about not just what the article, if you can tell listeners what the article basically summarize, you know, summarize the article or talk a little bit more about what it says, but at the same time, I'm really curious how you got to this point from your bu- book and writing and your work how you started to shift into seeing this or realizing this, because it seemed from the the research I've done about you, it, it seemed like you sort of it morphed over time. Like it wasn't something that you went into writing the book with in your mind. But I'd love to hear more from you. Yeah, that's a,
4: that's so interesting you point that out too, because I remember my first book was called The Ecological Other. And that book was more of an academic book, not certainly not geared written to be read by college students although some are forced to do so and i feel sorry for them but anyway <laughs> i wrote it as a dissertation and then a book you know as part of the 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 grind of being an academic the topic of that book was sort of the question why is the environmental movement so bad at taking on social justice you know why is the environmental movement so white and then that book i looked at the emotion of disgust environmentalist disgust and how over time since about uh, as late as early as the, the late um, 18th century, but even earlier than that, there was this kind of disgust related to land, the environment, property, that kind of thing that was a thread throughout and that got to the environmental movement. And so I was always interested in the kind of embedded green hate, as Betsy Hartman calls it, this embedded green hate in the environmental movement, why the environmental movement is not so innocent, and how it struggles to take on questions of social justice. So that was really my first Passion. So when I turned to looking at climate anxiety, I was sort of wondering where the justice was in this question around climate anxiety. And my first feelings about it was this is a hot topic. Everyone wants to talk about it. So I'm gonna run with it because I wanna, it's so exciting that there's a huge community of people who want to, to teach and learn about it. But I did notice with um, a colleague of mine named Jade Sasser, who's publishing a book right now on reproductive refusal, she was really central t- for me to help me think through why is the spaces that we're showing up to think about climate emotions, they're even wider than the environmental spaces we had been in before. And that was because the sort of justice lens that had already kind of hit the environmental spaces had not quite hit the climate emotion spaces yet. And frankly, it's been pretty slow to hit the climate spaces too. so. You know, that was one of the reasons that that it kind of took a while for me to figure out what is the racial justice lens on this question of climate emotions. And now, a couple of years later, this is really the topic of of most of my passion. And and Jade and Blanche Verley and I are hosting a a conference at Riverside. You see Riverside in April called Environment Justice and the Politics of Emotions, because we really want to stage a conversation between all these folks. But yeah, that was that took it took a little bit for me to figure out where's where's the justice lens to this question, and that essay from the Scientific American was my first attempt to kind of untangle some of those questions. And where one of the first places that it happened actually was with a student, of course. So I had a, a Latina student who was in a class who, when a couple of you know the anguish and despair that was circulating around my, this particular class one time was. I hadn't even noticed it. But now, of course, I have a better lens, but it was mostly being promulgated by a couple of white men, male students. And this student, this Latina student stood up at some point and was giving a report on something and said something about all this white fragility stuff. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, she just called their anguish about the climate white fragility. (laughs) Blew my mind. I was like, that's an analysis. I got to explore that. So that was really the beginning that planted the seed. And then Jade and I trying to think through why are these spaces not, you know, why is climate emotions and racial justice conversations not coming together? And yeah, that's where it all started. And the article was really about thinking through, is climate anxiety a kind of white fragility? You know, and I, I honestly, after a lot, a lot of thinking about it. there's a both and, you know, the answer is not, not clear. And I regret that Scientific American gave that article that title, because that's not the title I would have wanted. But it did, I suppose, get a lot of circulation. So (laughs) for for better or for worse.
2: (laughs) It's so interesting that you said the but and because I, yeah, I think it was also one of the things that we wanted to talk with you about. Because when I saw the article, it almost like worried me that it would cause people to not take eco-anxiety or climate anxiety seriously as well.
4: Absolutely. Faith, you hit the nail on the head. I still have that anxiety. I'm like, man, that title put people off thinking about climate. And, you know, then you had that wonderful Yes magazine article with Jennifer Chindu, the Nigerian sustainability, climate justice, feminist activist, awesome person, she had that article about let's move beyond climate anxiety, although she actually embraces climate anxiety as a term. So it's a weird paradox there. But there is a sort of move against, I mean, the, the article has been surra- gotten a lot of circulation on TikTok with a particular interviewer. And I, I do fear that the soundbite version of the article because of right. the title is going to make people so just assume climate anxiety is white. And that's that, you know, and not not to dive deep into it.
2: Right. And it was interesting. I mean, when I read your article, you know, I, I was like, well, yeah, duh. Right. Cause there was a part of me where it's like, if we're talking about a fear of living in a planet that is not inhabitable, people of color in our communities have already been living on a planet that is not inhabitable for multiple different reasons. Right. We're already, whether it's like, Access to land, or whether it's like being in communities that are polluted, or whether it's being in communities that are neglected or under resourced, or literally living in fear of violence, or you've already had your communities being forcibly removed. Like already the decision to bring children onto this planet is already a constant question, right? And so then in one of the things, right, in terms of one of the things that shows up as a symbol of climate anxiety. So it's like the idea about Fear of living in an inhabitable or uninhabitable planet, based on the context of your life every day, isn't a new idea for so many communities of color and individuals that come from those historically and ongoing under-resourced and underserved communities. Like that's not new. So it was interesting because when I read the article, I was like, "Well, yeah, like we don't necessarily need to call it something because it's just one more thing." that adds to the difficult context. And at the same time, I think it's really helpful to have a lens through which to understand what you're feeling, yeah.
4: Yeah, Faith, you nailed it on the head right there. I mean, you got it all there. It's not a new thing. And some of the really cool scholarship that's coming out about this, and also more public writing, is saying climate anxiety doesn't really work as a concept for a lot of communities who are under all kinds of other pressures. And I'm thinking here of the concept of climate apartheid and climate colonialism too, that climate anxiety is, climate change is just going to be an inequality magnifier. It's just going to make all the existing systems of oppression worse and harder to deal with. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, it itself is not the problem, right? It's this other stuff. And people are on a daily basis in a struggle for, you know, struggle for livelihood and, and thrivability and resistance against all of those more immediate systems That, of course, are just going to get worse with climate change. So they don't really need to call it climate. (laughs) I ended up trying to kind kind of go in a different direction to really complexify this question in an article in the Cairo Review of Global Affairs called Who Feels Climate Anxiety? And in that essay, I basically said, well, who feels it depends on who actually perceives climate change to be the threat, the greatest threat in their lives, And that is entirely a matter of power, you know, and insulation from threats, right? Who gets to perceive something as a threat is very much about your position, right? And then who gets to have access to this emotion of anxiety and what that even means? It's very culturally situated. So depending on who you are, you you may or may not be experiencing climate change, but climate anxiety is an entirely different question, you know?
2: Right, right, yeah. Where are you now? In terms of, I think, like having written that article, seeing the conversations that came from it and the way that it's been moving around and getting a lot of traction, have you had some, I don't know, recent revelations or like thoughts that you've been kind of
4: ruminating on? Oh, gosh, Faith. Oh, yeah, I love that. Okay, where am I now? Well, well, first of all, you mentioned at the end of your comment that climate anxiety is still experienced by lots of different people. So the interesting paradox, which I mentioned at the beginning of the article, but Jade's work is really bringing this forward um, when she publishes it. you will see more, much more detail. But basically... People of color, young people of color, especially women of color, care more about climate change than their white female counterparts and certainly white men, young young white men. So the data out there on where the concern lies is clear. So that's not the question. So then why is it that when we talk about climate anxiety in all these spaces, the sort of mental healthification of climate anxiety means that it's still just residing in these more privileged spaces? And actually climate itself as a concept is still not quite fully ensconced in the justice conversation. I'll still have a lot of people push back on me when I give book talks on climate anxiety saying, you know, climate is not the problem my community faces or climate anxiety is not the emotion that my community faces, you know, to the extent that it touches race or touches colonization. Then yes, maybe, but that's really secondary, and that's really a white framework. And I hear this often. What's up with that paradox? I'm really in- intrigued by that paradox of we s- clearly see the data on people of color caring more about climate change, but not wanting to identify or call it this- these words. And I think that there's a really interesting, important story to be said there about people having sovereignty of how they describe their own suffering, and not mm-hmm. just putting a you know claim on this is what it is. You're feeling climate anxiety, you just don't call it that. You know, it's very paternalistic. You know. So there's there's a real resistance movement there. I think we ought to give some, give some light onto. I'd like to do that work. And I also think that there's the framework of climate is inherently privileged in some ways. And so I want to de- untangle what kind of frameworks might we think about alternatively to climate that make this much more democratic phenomenon so that we can all kind of participate and organize around something else that more people feel like they have access to that really is at the root of it, whether it's colonization or whether it's, just inequality more broadly or something. But um, some of these some folks are saying some really cool stuff out there in the climate communication worlds about health being a better frame to get bipartisanship and get justice questions addressed more clearly and centrally in the climate conversation. So I really I'm provoked by this idea of health as a frame, public health as a better frame for talking about climate and to get away from the politicization of climate. Anyway, so that's where I'm a little bit at in all those places. and when you hear folks like Mariana East Heglar or Adrian R. Brown or a lot of people who I really admire their work, they will straight outright say they ha- they feel climate anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so there is a real sense to me that this is this is not a black and white situation. It's complicated, oh my gosh,
2: so much there that is oh, so yeah. so real, so exciting, and I'm like wow and i I think you're right, I'm like that direction of going toward health because I think that, and we've even we had someone on the podcast where we did our friend Sergio Avila, and we did his episode in Spanish because he was like, "I want to do it in Spanish and like that's who I'm trying to talk to and and one of the interesting parts of the conversation was there were no translations into Spanish for some of the most commonly used words that were being used when we were talking about environmental movements. And so that idea of literally like from a language question being lost in translation there, but I think it's true. Like I work with folks where I'm like, okay, I'm working on a, a feature film right now around these black farmers here and. Portland, Oregon. And even when I was working on it, I was like, is this still a documentary? I should clarify. But I was like, am I telling a climate story? I mean, it's clearly about people who are working in the earth. It's clearly about land reclamation. It's more than anything, it feels like a story about collective healing. And that's the framework that I would more likely put it on than climate. Not that this work isn't also related directly to the environment. And what does it mean to have a relationship with our natural world? So it's really fascinating to hear you think. Those things through from where you're st- sitting in that in a more academic sphere of like what does it mean to study this yeah, and create a new framework
4: yeah, faith, you're hitting the on again because these are this is the terms by which that community wants to articulate the work that needs to be done, the resistance that needs to be done. And climate is, has been dominated by a lot of white people in power for a long time. And that's actually why it's so successful right now. <laughs> I mean, we, we're worried about climate. We don't think it's being successful. But actually, as a frame, it has made its day. You know, it's arrived.
2: You mean the word climate?
4: Yeah, the, the word climate. Actually- like even from
1: global warming? when they framed, when they reframed it. Yeah. So, interesting. yeah. And also
4: the, and also just the concern about climate change is so, I mean, something yeah. like 60 to 80% of Americans are very concerned about climate change. You know, that level of, of public energy around any one topic is, is, is unbelievable, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I love that. And heal the idea of healing too, part of the problem with the frame of climate change is it's all in the negative frame. And we have negativity bias in our reptilian brains. And so we end up living in what Joanna Macy calls the great unraveling story where everything's going on a handbasket. And that is not a story that actually garners any kind of – it doesn't motivate people. It actually repels people. And it makes people apathetic and and check out and, and not be able to participate. And so when you talk about a story of collective healing or you talk about a story of the great turning, as Joanna Macy put it, or you talk about anything that makes people feel like, oh, I'm building something I love. I'm building my future I dream for, you know. Then you're going to get participation. And so it's not just that it's a black community's reframing of climate or unique take on climate. It is, in fact, psychologically speaking, utterly critical that we move away from that doom and gloom framework of how we're going to organize around climate change. And that's going to look like lots of different things. Collective healing is certainly one of them. (sighs) Ah. Wow. Wow. (laughs)
2: Thank you so much. Even just like so many parts of this conversation that I've loved. Also all of the incredible people that you've mentioned, like such a big Joanna Macy fan as well. So I'm excited to just have the excuse to link to this work as well. (laughs) Yeah. And and thank you. Just thank you so much for being here with us. I think we could go on and on. So we're certainly going to have to keep the conversation going in a later in a later episode. But I was going to say we may just have to have your own episode.
1: (laughs) we like,
3: we're
2: coming to (laughs) Cali.
4: You gave me a challenge because you you were like, this is going to be a short episode. It's a debrief. And I'm like, oh, how do I stop myself from just going down the rabbit holes? Same.
2: Oh, always.
1: (laughs) This is just scratching the surface, though. Thank you so much for joining us. This is honestly a topic we've both wanted to talk about for a really long time, as you can tell. So we're excited to be in touch with you and keep this conversation going. And thank you for the work that you do, too, because this is such important work to be reframing and and uh, creating frameworks, to use that word, but I also know that that's a colonial word as well, but reframing how we all relate to this topic. So thank you. The Trail Ahead is created and hosted by us, Faith E. Briggs and Addie Thompson. It's produced by Anna Agogo at Ajode Media. Angel Adriano is our audio engineer. Claire Yo is our copywriter. Podcast art is by Shar Tuiasawa. Check her out on Instagram at Punky Aloha. And special thanks to the amazing teams at Merrill and Patagonia. And we'll see you next episode.